we thank you for the life that you give us through your son. We ask this morning that you would draw near to us. Teach us by your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can have a seat. And if you're one of our kiddos, K through 5, you can be dismissed to kids' worship. He is there, and he is not silent. Those words formed the title of a Francis Schaeffer book back in the early 1970s. Pastor, theologian, philosopher, understander of culture, Francis Schaeffer had a ministry to that generation who was questioning everything and losing themselves in the process. He is there and he is not silent could be the title of the psalm we're going to look at today. Psalm 19 has three movements in it. And in this psalm, we get to see that God reveals himself. God proclaims himself. God shouts about himself through creation. He does it through his word, the Bible. And he does it through those who respond to him in loving obedience, through the transformation of our lives. So those are the three movements. Our calling, our command, is to be intentional in discipling the next generation to Jesus. A generation which questions everything and is in danger of losing themselves to biblical ignorance and poor theology. We are called to point people to Jesus. And this psalm gives us some ideas for relational discipleship. This psalm, just like every psalm, points us to God so that we might praise him, so that we might better understand him. And it, it, it shows us within life experiences. So David will draw on some life experiences as he points us to the living God. We want to be a people that are intentional. And I hope that this psalm inspires you to point others to Jesus, whether it's through a formal study or just a conversation over coffee. And dads, I would lay out a special challenge for you since it's Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. And I would challenge you to be inspired and to even use the methodology, the, the content that David recommends here as we get to know God in helping our children be discipled to Jesus. I'm privileged today. My gang is all with me, and I'm very thankful that you guys have come in town and, and that uh, we got to celebrate last night with dinner. I invite you to turn to Psalm 19 with me. And the first thing we're going to see is that God has revealed himself through his works. God has made himself known through his works as creator of the world. So when we look at creation, we're not looking at God. We are looking at what the creator, what the living God has made. David 
must have had a, a moment to himself where he could pause and, and just reflect on and enjoy God's creation. And he gets overwhelmed with joy. And so he blurts out, his joy arises from God's beautiful creation. And this is what he says in verse 1 of Psalm 19. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. We can look to the sky and learn about God. That's what David is so moved by. And he's filled with joy. Certainly that there's an expression of who God is through his creation but also just in the fact that God would share such beauty with us, that he has made this for us to delight in and enjoy. We can look to the sky and learn of God. These two phrases just repeat one another, and that's typical of the, the poetry and Psalms, as you know. They don't, they don't specialize in rhythm and rhyme, although verses 7 through 11 do a little bit here. But verses 1 through 6, we've got this synonymous parallelism where one phrase just repeats the other so that we can really grasp what's going on here. And, and, and David said, the heavens tell about God. The heavens declare about God. They are the ones that proclaim. And so we can look to the sky and discern that God exists. And we can learn a little bit about his attributes, a little bit about what he is like by looking at what he has made as creator. The Bible is not necessary for knowing that God exists. David's letting us know that we can look at creation. We can look at that which God has made and realize that he exists and that we can learn about him through creation. Paul and Barnabas alluded to this in Acts 14. They were on their first missionary trip, and when they were in Lystra, they performed a miracle which led to the whole town coming out and worshiping them. After all, they did this miracle. And so they even call them Jupiter and Mercury. And Paul and Barnabas say, no, 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 <laughs> we are not gods. We are men like you. We have come to proclaim the gospel to you. That's what we want you to know. Jesus sent us to do that. But there is the living God, the creator God, who has made himself known. And so they refer to God. And this is what we read in verse 17. Paul and Barnabas are shouting, and yet we did not, he did not leave himself without witness in that God did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And so just in those words, they are referring to the living God, that he exists. And they are letting them, they're reminding the people that we can learn about him, that, that he's a God of design, that he sends the rain to produce the food. He is a God of goodness because he gives them food from the earth. He is a God of joy because he brings joy to their hearts. There is so much to learn about God just by looking at creation. And, and so Paul and Barnabas, in the midst of proclaiming the gospel on this missionary trip, they go back to that. God's design is seen in creation. And through rainy seasons, food, joy, God makes his goodness, his wisdom, his generosity, his power known. David knew nothing of science. 
He didn't have the microscopes that we have today. He didn't have the telescopes that we have today. But he observed what God had made. And everything that he saw pointed him to the living God, the creator. And he was overwhelmed by God's glory and the fact that he could discern some attributes. Well, the next three verses take us from the sky and just really confirm and build into this idea that we can learn about God through his creation. We're not learning from the written word. We're not learning from the spoken word. We are learning from God's nonverbal communication. This is what he says in verse 2. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Day and night, God's communication gushes forth. That's the literal meaning of pours forth. It's, it's, it's literally the idea of bubbling up. And, and so God just continually proclaims who he is through the beauty of the outdoors, through all that we can experience as we look around, as we feel the cool air or the heat, as we breathe the cool air. In the day we get sunrise and sunset. And so again, God's communication is nonverbal. It's through light, and it's through the magnitude of things, and it's through motion, and it's through design. And we're familiar with nonverbal communication, right? We know what's communicated with a frown and what's communicated with a smile. What's communicated with arms folded and what's communicated with a welcoming hug. So what we see here is God is using nonverbal communication to bring us the light and to show us who he is and what he, he is about. God's nonverbal communication continues into the night. This picture is taken from the Hubble telescope. So there's a few more stars than we get to see when we're viewing the skies from Earth. It's a beautiful picture of God's handiwork in space. On a clear night, we can see roughly 2,500 to 3,000 stars. But when you get above and beyond the Earth's atmosphere with the Hubble telescope, you can see many, many more. When we look at the stars, we're overwhelmed by the, the beauty of God, the power of God. We looked at the passage last week in Isaiah where we were reminded that not only did God create these stars, that he sustains them, but he's named all of them, and he leads them out by name each night. It's an incredible, incredible work of the creator. God is continually communicating from his heart and his mind to our heart and our mind. And that's what we pick up on in the beauty and the power of creation. David makes it clear that what is known of God is known without words. And so in verse 3, even though he's been talking about everything that's proclaimed by God, he reminds us it's done without words. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Creation is mute. It is wordless words. It is a voiceless voice. It is speechless speech. This is how God communicates to us through nature. And some people are really, really geared that way to just absorb and to worship God through looking at nature. 
some of us just enjoy nature and creation. And some of us with a little intentionality can begin to see God through creation, discern his attributes. David struggles with his poetry and this whole paradox of God proclaiming himself, gushing forth with communication about who he is, but not using words. So he goes back to the whole communication in verse 4, and he says, Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. Line means to call or to sound. You might even have that in your version of Scripture or in your margin. God's call his sound about who he is and his glory has gone out throughout all the earth. It is universal. It is continual. We've seen that in verses 2 to 4 here. Everyone in the world can be aware of God if they simply look at his creation. The Apostle Paul doubles up on this truth in Romans 1, verse 20, a passage that you're probably very familiar with. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, speaking of the living God, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that mankind is without excuse. We know God exists because of creation, and we know that we can discern some of his attributes, some of his characteristics, by looking carefully at what he has made. It's similar to looking at a, a painting, isn't it? When we look at a painting, we can begin to discern a little bit about the artist. We, we might certainly know what kind of media she prefers or what kind of uh, paint she uses or what size canvas she prefers. And if we look at the content we might uh, of several paintings, we might pick up on themes. We might pick up on some of her country of origin or her background. There, there are so many things that we can discern just by looking at a painting. And, and so we get this. When, when David says, look, at, look up at the skies, look around at creation, we understand that we can discern and understand more about God. We can learn a great deal without words. And, and so David tells us that's how God is communicating with us. And he declares his knowledge to all who will listen. And then in verses 5 and 6, he kind of settles on the sun. And that's an easy one, right? Especially for an outdoorsman like David, used to the sunrise and the sunset every day, used to hiding from the sun in the heat of the day, a shepherd as a boy, a warrior as a young man, a king. He is one who's very familiar with the sun. And so he focuses there. His focus on the sun reveals the placement of God by the, of the sun by God. Uh, again, we see something of design. We see the extent and the circuit that the sun runs along, the track, if you will, that God has placed it from our understanding. Obviously, the earth is turning. David writes this, verses 4 and 5, In them he has placed a tent for the sun, speaking of the canopy of the heavens, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. David looked at the sun, and he saw great splendor and majesty. 
He saw what God had designed, and so he referred to it as a groom. What is a groom like? Well, certainly he's pretty nervous most times, but it's also a festive occasion. It's a joyful occasion. And so David is, is letting us know that as he looks at the sun, which God made, that it brings great joy to him. It, great, it brings great anticipation of getting to know God, just like the, the, the groom has an anticipation of going to meet his bride on his wedding day. And, and then we're told that he is like a strong athlete who is competing. That's what the glory of God is like, is seen through the sun. That God's glory is strong and powerful. David is picking up on all of this through God's creation. And he's reveling in the glory of God. Verse 6, David says this, It's rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. Uh, again, we get more ideas about God and his glory, about God and his authority, God and his rule that it covers the entire earth and that it penetrates everything. There is nothing hidden from God, just like there is nothing hidden from the heat of the sun. So I suggest we get outside this week, even though July is headed our way and, and, and constant 100 degree temperatures. Maybe you can get up early, stay up late. But just take a look. And when you are outside, even just walk into the car, take a look at what God has provided you and thank him that you get to know him, that he proclaims who he is through what he has made. Look for new things, new understanding of who he is. And dads, take your, your kids on a walk. Simple as that. Look at the flowers, the wildlife and ask questions. What does this teach us about God as we look at these unique things? It takes a little time and a little intentionality, but it's a beautiful thing to consider God and how he has revealed himself through his works. Verses 7 through 11 are next, and, and we see here that God has revealed himself through his word. God has made himself known through the Bible. And while the Bible is not absolutely necessary to understand that God exists, it is necessary to understand some of his revelation, some of his truth about the gospel, about why we are here, about how to serve him, about what he wants us to do as we respond to him. We want to be a people that respond to God. And if that's true, then we've got to know him and what's important to him. We get that through his word. Paul gives us this in, in 2 Timothy 3. Tremendous passage and, and one, again, that you're familiar with. But I think it's practical to look at here because it reminds us of how profitable God's word is. That we should be drawn to it. We should not ignore it. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. He says this, all scripture is God-breathed. And it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. We learn that God's word is profitable for our lives. And so it is good for teaching, for showing us what is right. It's good for rebuking, showing us what is not right. And especially if it's in our lives. It's good for correcting. It shows us how to get back right. And training in righteousness, how to stay right, how to walk in fellowship 
with God. We don't want to be a people that ignore God's word. He has revealed himself there, and he has given us his truth to change our lives. In verses 7 through 11, especially 7 through 9, we see God's word giving us knowledge of God. There are six statements in verses 7 through 9, which contain six common names that are used throughout Scripture for God's Word. They contain six attributes of God's Word and six ministries of God's Word to us. But before we look at those statements, I I, want to point out that each one of them says they are of the Lord, the judgments of the Lord, the law of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord. And that is so key that David includes that in his poetry, that we are reminded that this is God's word, that it has authority that we are to submit to, that it has all of his characteristics, that it is true, that it is eternal, that it is powerful. We want to be a people who submit to God's word because it comes directly to him. Paul used the word God breathed. We're forced to make an important choice here. And that choice is, are we going to consider God's word authoritative in our lives? Are we going to consider it to be the source of truth for us? And that's difficult. In today's world where we have so many options and so many distractions, we can turn to social media. We can turn to favorite authors and bloggers and podcasts. We can turn a lot of directions away from the Lord. Most of it comes down to looking at our minds as the source of our truth and authority. God's word is of the Lord. It comes from him. And so we want to sit up and take it seriously. This is what David wrote in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Law and testimony, two common names for God's word used throughout Scripture. And so we're reminded here that as the son, David has just talked about, restores natural life, God's word restores the spiritual life, that he restores our souls. David likes to refer to that. He does it again in Psalm 23. And just as the sun dispels darkness in the land, God's word dispels ignorance of God's truth and opens our minds makes wise the simple and wisdom keeps us from poor decisions and moves us toward healthy decisions and we can trust God's word because it is flawless and dependable verse 8 David wrote the precepts of the Lord are right rejoicing the heart the commandment of the Lord is pure enlightening the eyes so God's word brings joy to our hearts and wisdom to our minds God, David is, is giving us strong motivation to get to know God's word for a better life here. And in verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. 
the fear of the Lord is that reverential trust which a person gains by knowledge of God's word. We are drawn to him with a deeper trust by getting to know him. We revere him more because we understand in greater ways his capacities, the infinite nature of all his attributes which are revealed to him, to us, through scripture. God's word is trustworthy because it is clean. As truth, it endures. It is not tainted with false ideas, and we can trust it. The special revelation of God through Scripture points us to Jesus, and David is passionate about God's Word in these verses. But I don't think he's passionate about God's Word as a student. I think he's passionate about God's Word as a friend of God. I think he goes to God's Word to better understand the relationship that he has with God, to hear from God, to express his love for God, and to experience God's love and joy for him. He recognizes the benefits of learning and living God's word, of hearing and heeding it. And he's thankful that God has revealed himself through his word. Next, David announces the results of knowing God through his word. And he says this in verse 10, they are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Gold was the most expensive thing that David knew in his day. And he is saying that God's word is more valuable to him than gold. Honey was the sweetest thing that David was able to taste and experience in his life. And he is saying that God's word is sweeter to him in the way that it touches him deeply and moves him toward God and allows him to understand the Lord in a greater way. God's word is more pleasing. We've got to be a people who prioritize God's word to get to this point of saying it is more valuable than fine gold, that it is sweeter than honey, especially, like I said, when we have all these other options that we tend to go to first, whether it's just for amusement or education or learning, as opposed to going to God's word and getting to know him. We've forgotten the value of God's word. At times, we're kind of like the, the child who chooses the penny over the dime because it's bigger and they don't understand the value. Or the child who takes the, the shiny quarter over the dollar bill because it's shiny, they don't understand the value. And, and so when we get so distracted and so immersed in this world, even beginning to love the world and all that it offers us, then we begin to turn away from Jesus Christ. And we begin to walk away from God's word, whether it's a silent drift or an open choice of rebellion. David reminds us in verse 11, moreover by them, by the precepts, the judgments, the commands, your servant is warned. And in keeping them, there is great reward. We've got to intentionally choose to prioritize God's word. There is great benefit there. We are warned against things that are not beneficial for our lives and do not please God. And there is great reward by responding to God in loving obedience. We bring him greater honor and glory. But we also become more like Christ through cooperation with the Holy Spirit. Too often, 
we'll get to the point where we just say, you know, the Bible does nothing for me. Perhaps you've been there. Perhaps you're there now. I don't feel like reading it. It's, it's really of no use. Doesn't help me. I don't get anything out of it. I've certainly been there. But we've got to be intentional. Because God's word, which is true and eternal, and a message from Jesus Christ to us, tells us it does do things. That it does rejoice the hearts and bring joy. That it does give us wisdom in our decision-making. That it does enlighten our eyes. That it restores our soul. These are things we need and long for. And so we've got to go to the Word. We've got to discipline ourselves and be intentional uh, about looking at God's Word. Because it points us to Jesus, and He is life-giving, and His Word is life-nurturing. Dads, and, and to everyone here who mentors another one through relational discipleship, the greatest love we can pass along to our children, to our mentees, is a love for Jesus. And much of that's going to be generated through a love for God's Word. And I'm not talking about sitting down with heavy studies. Sometimes that's important at different levels of spiritual maturity and in different ages. But at any point, we can point to Jesus. We can, we can use Scripture to process life together. We can bring God's Word to bear on one another for teaching, for correcting, for rebuking, for training in righteousness. That's our privilege, just with the truth of God's Word. So we want to be a people to get to know about it so that we can pass it along to others. God's glory is revealed through creation. It's revealed through his word. In the final three verses, we see God's glory revealed in us. Psalm 19, 12 to 14, God reveals himself through our transformation, through the life change that he brings in us from the inside out. God has revealed himself to all who will look, and he gives his truth through scripture to move in our lives. And there are two ways to look at this third movement in Psalm 19. Both intersect with each other and have to do with response. The first way is from God's side. He provides the transformation. He changes us from the inside out when we submit to his authoritative word, when we cooperate with the Holy Spirit. He's the one who brings the change. The second way is from man's side. We must respond to the truths about God's word. We must not only learn it for knowledge's sake, but to live it, to apply it, to heed it, as God often says. How are we going to essentially declare God's glory? Well, it happens through a loving response to God's word, to accepting his authority and submitting, to joyfully looking for ways to incorporate God's word in our lives that we might experience his joy and, his and know his wisdom. God's word warns us and welcomes with great re reward. Life flows better when we obey Jesus. Well, despite a, a love for God, 
through nature and a love for God through his word, we still sin. And so David addresses that here. And that's why I think that this last one has to do with God revealing himself and us bringing him glory through our lives. Because he addresses sin in our lives and he addresses it two different ways. We must deal with the sin that remains in our lives, those fleshly desires, and we must deal with the sin that dominates our lives or threatens to dominate our lives. And the truth is that though we've experienced salvation and forgiveness of sin, we still sin. And so David deals with that here in verses 12 and 13. Sometimes the sin sneaks up on us and sometimes we simply choose to sin in rebellion to God. David's concentrating on the glory of God through creation and through his word. And now he's looking at that through our lives. If we're going to bring glory to God in our lives and we've got to deal with sin in our lives. So the first thing that David does in, in verse 12 is he deals with the sins that sneak up on us. That sin nature, that sin principle that is within. The power of that sin has been broken at the cross. And that means that we can live in obedience to Jesus Christ. But still, sin arises. And so David addresses that. And what he does is he asks for forgiveness for the sins when he gives into the flesh. He might even be asking for forgiveness for not being in God's word, which would warn him about sin and make it evident in his life. This is what he says in verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Pardon me. Forgive me. And then David secondly addresses willful sins. And he says this in verse 13. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins or willful sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. David wants to glorify God. He wants to reveal God's glory to the world. And he recognizes that when he presumes to know things better than God, when he presumes to make choices that are not God's choices, he doesn't bring glory to God. And so he's asking for power here not to be dominated by sin. It's very similar to Romans 6, where Paul says that the power of sin is broken and that we can present our bodies as instruments of righteousness. That we don't have to be slaves to sin. But when we give ourselves to sin and we choose that, then we are being dominated by that sin. David prays for forgiveness for sins that sneak up and happen. And he prays for power to deal with sins that dominate. And then he sets the trajectory of his life for the near future with this request in verse 14. A beautiful passage. Many of you have shared with me over the years how you memorize this. Keep it on a card on your bathroom mirror. How you meditate on it. How you make it your life first for a year. Verse 14, David says this. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Note the honesty in, in seeking God's care. God is our rock. And, and the honesty and the comfort in placing himself in God's care. Whether you struggle with sexual immorality or bitterness, a critical spirit or judgmental words, gossip, bad attitudes, 
wrong choices, whatever it is, turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. Make this your heartbeat as opposed to just looking around in the world and selecting from the latest buffet. And when we do this in community, as God wrote, had these songs written for it to be sung in community, then we experience even greater power, this dynamic of community that God has given us those who will walk alongside of us, who will challenge us and who will love us accept us, but help pull us along with God's word in God's direction. Jesus is our rock. He's a refuge for sinners, and he's our redeemer who saves us from our sins and empowers us to walk with him. David has shown us great ways to recognize the glory of God and to bring God glory, whether it's simply through the praise of acknowledging who he is, or drawing on God's word, or meditating on God's word and prayer so that we might, that our words might be acceptable and that our thoughts, our attitudes, everything that runs through our mind would be acceptable in his sight. David shows us a loving relationship with the Lord and perhaps the most important word in that last verse is the word my, my rock and my redeemer. And I would challenge you today, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, if you haven't accepted his grace, if you haven't asked him to come into your life and lead you, if your sins are not forgiven and you don't have the gift of eternal life to receive him today, that you can say, he is my rock and my redeemer. Simply believe that he is God the Son who died on the cross for your sins in your place, was buried and rose again. That's the simplicity of the gospel. And when you commit to Jesus Christ that way, he enters your life to lead you. That's eternal life. It starts right then. And you'll be with him for all eternity. And your sins are forgiven. So you don't have to experience guilt and shame. Get to know him as my rock and my redeemer that you might bring him glory and understand him in greater ways. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are our rock and our redeemer. We thank you that you give us a refuge in a world that's just chaotic and is hard to grasp at times and is threatening at times. And we thank you that you are secure and strong and powerful and that you care about us. Thank you that you cared enough to give your life on the cross to die in our place for our sins, paying a penalty that we could not pay. And we thank you, Lord, that you enter our lives to lead us. And so we pray for a, a week where we better recognize you through creation and give thanks and praise. And for a week where we are intentional about your word, whether it's a single verse we meditate on all week or, or in-depth study, we pray that your word we come alive and do in our lives what you tell us it does here in Psalm 19. And we ask that you would be revealed, that your glory would be revealed through our transformation that only you can bring about. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
Would you stand with us?
morning have a great weekend a great week it's the beginning of the week